Hi there, my fellow game devs, and welcome to the All Things Unity podcast. My name is Ruben, and I'll be your host. So this is the third episode of the All Things Unity podcast, and we are going to continue our journey through clean code. We've already discussed the first five chapters of the book, and if you have not listened to these episodes, go back and listen to them to know what's up. In the first entry of this series of podcasts about clean code, we dove into the first three chapters of the book. We talked about what clean code is, why it is important, and why we should strive to keep the code clean and always improving. Then we jumped immediately into chapter 2, which was about meaningful names, which described how we should name files or classes, functions, arguments to these functions, variables, and much more. And next, we dove into the chapter about functions. We discussed how important it is that functions must be easy to understand and readable. We don't, for example, allow functions to have unknown side effects and make sure queries and commands are separate. And the fourth chapter was all about comments. We talked about how the best comment there is, is the comment you did not have to write. And a comment does not give you an excuse to write bad code. And it is essentially a failure of our ability to express ourselves in code. We discussed some of the best practices and what types of comments should always be deleted. So delete commented out code as soon as you see it. Don't read it, just delete it. (laughs) That would be a nice hashtag, I guess. And... The last chapter we talked about was formatting, which is highly important as well. However, much of this is automated by our tooling, like linters and IDEs nowadays. Or formatters, I should say. And I I think back in the days when Uncle Bob was just starting out, or even when the book was written, which was the late 2000s, there wasn't much tooling, I guess. Uh, But this chapter was fun to discuss, and you will definitely learn something. So... For this episode, we are going to dive into the next four chapters of the books. Uh, Yes, you heard it right. Four chapters. Some of them are, well, rather short, but don't underestimate the value of these short chapters. They too provide much interesting information. So for this episode, the first thing we discuss is chapter 6, and that's about objects and data structures. We're going to have a look at what rules apply to objects and what rules apply to data structures. There is a distinct difference we will discover and talk about. Next, there is a chapter about error handling, which is chapter 7. We're going to discuss how to deal with exceptions and what the best practices Uncle Bob prescribes in in a clean code context. And also, exceptions might not be the best idea to deal with in a Unity 3D context, since they destroy your performance. But more about this later. And the next chapter, chapter 8, is about boundaries. And In this book, Boundaries is all about how to integrate with third-party code. So if you are familiar with clean architecture concepts, this might all sound familiar to you. However, Uncle Bob explains how to explore third-party code and how to make sure your code is not dependent on it. And the last chapter we will deal with in this episode is about unit tests. And testing can be very difficult in Unity 3D. Finding a Unity 3D project that has like proper unit tests with different uh, decent coverage, uh, well, is very, uh, very rare. And that's for a reason, right? And we will discuss that all in this episode. But let's 
start talking about chapter 6, Objects and Data Structures. And I remember reading this chapter for the first time, and I was really blown away by the simplicity of the advice or principles that are described here. Object-oriented programming principles and values can be really difficult to describe in a way that is, well, really simple and makes sense to even the most junior among us. But Uncle Bob explains it so nicely and... If you have knowledge of the solid principles, you're going to see some overlap with them. So yeah, let's jump right in. So he starts off by saying that object-oriented programming is about hiding implementation. So why do we expose data with getters and setters? Well, he makes a valid point here, doesn't he? How many times have you seen classes that have all their fields or properties marked public without, yeah, well, a valid reason? And I think that the observation that OOP is about hiding implementation is, well, an interesting observation, right? I mean, hiding implementation is not just about data, but it's also about hiding concrete implementations by like a means of polymorphism. And well, for listeners that do not know what polymorphism is, well, it is at runtime objects of a derived class may be treated as objects of the base class. So, for example, we might have a base class called vehicle that exposes a function called like move forward or something. And we have a derived class for like car and truck. Both of them derive from vehicle and thus you can treat them equally and both move them forward by means of the move forward function. So we can treat car and truck as vehicles. So with polymorphism, we are able to operate on objects of which we do not need to know the concrete runtime type. And we don't care if it's a truck or a car, we just want to make it forward, right? And we can just act on its interface called vehicle. And this might be difficult to grasp in the beginning, and I have written some blogs about this before, which I will link into the show notes. And polymorphism is also a really important concept in object-oriented programming uh, to write clean code and, well, manage your source code dependencies. So let's take a look at the first item on Uncle Bob's list about objects and data structures, which is all about data abstraction. And what he essentially talks about this in this first paragraph is that you should try uh, and avoid adding automatically generated getters and setters to objects and really put some thought into writing a proper interface for an object. Don't just expose its inner data structure, but also uh, enforce a policy for accessing and manipulating that data. And this might take some effort uh, and refactoring here and there, but generally we want to express our data and objects in abstract matters. And the problem with exposing all these getters and setters is that you probably get business logic spread all over your application that could be perfectly hidden away in the object itself. So try to encapsulate that logic into the class and make it accessible through an abstract interface. This way, your objects will fit your domain better and functionality is localized into that class. And yeah, I guess that what I just explained can be difficult to grasp since it essentially describes how to properly do object-oriented programming. But what it boils down to is to use access modifiers properly and encapsulate code into the object that it belongs to. Don't just make everything public and thus accessible to everyone. And this may be difficult to get started with in Unity 3D since I 
still think the current official tutorials and stuff still tell you to make fields public to be able to access them through the inspector. And just as a quick reminder, if you make your fields private and add a serialized field attribute to these fields, it will also be accessible from the inspector. But now you cannot practice your pastafism religion and create like a giant spaghetti monster since they are private and thus you cannot access these properties in code. And this can be difficult to start with since, yeah, the tutorials still tell people to do it this way. And you will need to do some proper architecture and use of design patterns, for example, to solve that problem of accessing data. But we will dive into proper game architectures uh, later in, well, later in this podcast. Let's continue with clean code first. And the next item on the list is data object anti-symmetry. What the heck is that, you might think? And I thought the same when I first read this, uh, like, a long time ago. And Uncle Bob explains that data object anti-symmetry is the concepts that data, or, well, classes, encapsulate their data and hide it behind abstractions, while data structures expose their data publicly and have no meaningful functions. So they are complete opposites in that matter. And we can see this concept in Unity 3D as well. Generally, not always, but generally, data structures are implemented as structs in C-sharp. And you are unlikely to find a struct that has one or more public-facing functions. Like, for example, the vector classes in Unity 3D. They do not have any public functions that are actual operations that manipulate the struct. And that's for a reason, of course, since structs are value objects and not reference objects. And I'm not going into that rabbit hole to describe the difference between value and reference types, since I'll have to explain everything about the stack, the heap, garbage collection and everything. And it's worthy of its own dedicated podcast however so let me know if you would like to hear a podcast about like the stack the heap garbage collection and maybe even uh, intermediate language which is uh, like ran by the clr and then compiled to machine code but yeah having an understanding of these topics will improve the performance of your code since you are able to follow the rules better so you know when to use a struct or a class and how to initialize like collection types, for example. But um, yeah, we were talking about data object anti-symmetry and how classes hide and abstract their data and data structures do the opposite and, and expose their data and do not have any nice abstractions to access that data. And this is a nice concept to keep in the back of your mind while designing systems for games. Try to make your classes operate through abstractions and an abstract interface while hiding implementation details and encapsulate data. While on the other hand, try to expose your data if it's a simple value object or a data structure and consider using a struct instead of a class for performance reasons. And I just mentioned I wouldn't go too far into details about this now because I will probably spend the rest of this podcast talking about it but I can most certainly make uh, a dedicated podcast to this subject and we can make a full deep dive into this. But let's continue discussing the book for now, shall we? So the next topic is called The Law of Demeter. And if you have watched some of the popular high-profile people in the industry, like Uncle Bob or like Martin Fowler, Ken Beck or Ward Cunningham, for example, you might have heard about this law. And it's 
it states that, and I'll quote the, the clean code book, a module should not know about the innards of the objects it manipulates. This is essentially what Uncle Bob already told us in the previous section, right? The law of Demeter refers to objects hiding their data, but exposing operations. So an object uh, internal structure is not exposed to the outside world. It also states that if you have uh, two objects called A and B, A is only allowed to call operations on B, or returned or created by B. You're not allowed to call operations through B to, let's say, an object called C. I hope this makes sense without source code. Um, it's pretty. It's a pretty easy concept if you see some source code. So if it doesn't, uh, please pause my beautiful voice for a minute and check the law of the meter out on Wikipedia, for example. And I personally think this is a great law to follow in your object-oriented code. And it will make your code less fragile and you will have less dependencies on the structures of the data. So. If you need to refactor something or add new features, you are less likely to break things. And it will avoid you making what Uncle Bob calls train wrecks, which are the next topic on Uncle Bob's list of advice for objects and data structures. So train wrecks are what Uncle Bob calls these long successive calls through objects. Like for example, a call like player singleton dot active player dot left hand dot weapon dot fire so well this is a long train wrecked chain of accessing data and calling a function at the end you should not do this uh, this is bad practice and it breaks well the law of the meter we just talked about um, plus if anything in that call chain changes or maybe is destroyed in a unity sense, your train wreck will crash and exceptions will be thrown. And well, now having said this, we've probably seen like hybrid solutions, like objects that expose really nice and significant functions, but also expose some of their internal data structure to the outside world through like public accessors. And Uncle Bob says you should try to avoid these kinds of classes. But I think it is more nuanced. I mean, I will have classes in my code that expose a nice interface, but also expose some of their data. Although I'll try to make the data I expose immutable if I can. Because the problem with exposed data is that everyone can access it and thus potentially change it. But these changes are not governed by the class itself anymore if you just access them through fields or properties for example. So this can lead uh, to the situation that some object changes the internal state of another but it might not be aware of it. So for example if you have classes A, B and C where B holds a reference to C and A is able to destroy or dispose C through simple accesses like B.C, B will probably throw an exception when trying to operate on C, since B is unaware that this world has changed. But if you make C a private member of B, and then if you want to access this, you must go through B, and thus B has more control over C. And A has less control over C. And thus, um, you can make your code cleaner by simple functions and not having C exposed. Alright, well, again, I hope this makes sense since I get that explaining this without source code is quite hard. So 
I hope you get a grasp of what I just said, and if not, please leave me a comment, or better even, well, check the book, right? Um, so, the next thing Uncle Bob talks about is what he calls hiding structure. And I think we talked about this for two times now already, but he dives a bit deeper into it now with some very nice examples. He says that since we should hide data structure of objects and their associations, we need some other way of exposing, exposing these associations. So imagine that you have two classes like A and B, and you need to access some functionality in B, but you only hold a reference to A, you would how would you access b when you are supposed to hide b and not expose that to the outside world well you could create a function on a uh, and a function on b and thus you sh should call a but this would mean that a will have lots of functions based on the associations so if a has three associations with all like five functions a will have 15 functions added to it uh, and it would be encapsulated, but it will still expose its internals. So Uncle Bob says that in many cases, you can think of a clever solution to solve this. And the example in the book is about getting some file path to create a stream for accessing some file system. So there is some code that essentially says a.b.getFilePath. And he says we can refactor that code to create something like a.createFileStream, where A will thus internally use B to get the file path and create a stream for you. It will simply return the stream object for you to work with. This is the source of clever solutions Uncle Bob means. So we hide the internal structure of A by defining different kinds of functions. And a general rule that is also present in this particular example is that a question about something can often be converted into a command. So the get file path was transformed into a create file stream in this example. And in many cases, you will find that doing something like this is a perfectly viable option. This is a nice practice to keep in the back of your mind since it will greatly improve the code by creating less dependencies. So. Next up is a very, very important topic that everyone should consider heavily, and that is data transfer objects, or request and response objects, I sometimes call them. This, well, these kinds of objects are essential for decoupling your code from any outside interactions like the web or databases and the file system. So a data transfer objects, let's call them DTOs from now on, are objects that define the data structures that are used for communication purposes, hence transfer in their name. So a DTO will be used for any serialization, like storing them on the file system or serializing them into request bodies of a HTTP request, for example. DTOs should not contain functions and can in many cases be defined in structs, in a C-sharp context, that is. So you use DTOs at the outside edges of your game to interact with any external software. Uh, this is very, very important because if you don't want your business objects to be dependent on externals, you really need to do this. I can't really emphasize this enough. DTOs are essential for a decoupled system. And 
I have made this mistake before where I did not use DTOs for our game and thus our business objects got many unnecessary properties because of it. And we were like building a low-code solution to use in a web browser that interacted with Unity 3D to create games and simulations. So a content editor would be able to create some behavior in his web browser, which would then get downloaded by our 3D application and deserialized and executed. Uh, this is a very, very simple explanation. It was far more complex than I just described in three sentences, but okay, for the sake of this example, we can keep it simple. So in the backend, this behavior would have many metadata like, uh, like an author who created it, lots of timestamps and versions and stuff. And this data, uh, data was totally not needed for actually executing it in Unity, right? So our business objects would depend on the data structures that were being communicated. This also meant that when the backend developers would edit some properties in the objects, or maybe even refactor them a little bit, our business objects needed to change as well. This is a very bad design. Trust me, I felt this pain. And always make DTOs objects uh, for these kinds of scenarios. Oh, and well, by the way, um, you might have different DTO objects depending on the target medium. So for example, you might have a player business object, but you have like a player web DTO for communication to some backend or cloud service, but you also have like a player SQL DTO for saving it effect, uh, well, ef efficiently to a local SQL database. This is a viable and very flexible solution since you can now change your business object whenever you want and you are not dependent on either the web nor the database. So remember this principle well. But all right, let's look at the next topic, which is active records. And well, active records are objects that are sort of special forms of DTOs, which have special methods for direct translations to their databases or like, well, uh, external data sources. So a, an active record typically has functions like find or save. And if you use those, you must put them in a particular namespace, for example, and treat them as simple DTOs. Don't build your business logic around active records because your business logic will then be dependent on the attached data source. And if you don't want that, well, we don't want that, right? Well, when I think of active records, I think about Ruby on Rails. Uh, and I mean, I haven't touched Ruby in a very, very long time, but I remember that Rails devs sometimes use active records as their models in like a model view controller architecture for building a website. But now when you need to run and write tests, their models are dependent on the Rails framework and also the database. So each test now has an additional setup and teardown logic connected to it to connect and disconnect the database access. And I guess there are ways around it by now, I hope so, but if this model were not directly to the active records, you would not have this problem and the test would run much faster. So that's a wrap for chapter six, objects and data structures. We have discussed data abstraction and objects, data uh, asymmetry, which refers to objects hiding their data while data structures expose their data. We discussed the law of the meter, which says that you should only talk to your direct associations and not to strangers. 
So don't go calling a.b.c.mymagicmethod. Uh, make that logic accessible from A and avoid making so-called train wrecks. We've talked about what DTOs are and how important they are for a, creating a decoupled system. And lastly, active records, which are a special kind of DTO for, for built-in connections to their data source. And I hope you enjoyed this chapter and learned something. But let's have a look at chapter 7 as well. So chapter 7 is all about error handling. And the first chapter in this sentence states, and I quote, it might seem odd to have a section about error handling in a book about clean code. And Uncle Bob is right, but there's always a but, right? Error handling can be a massive issue in code, especially in games. And in the first podcast about clean code, where we discussed meaningful names and functions, we talked about how functions must be short and the level of indenting should be one. And we also touched upon the topic that said that the body of a try-catch block should only contain one line, a function that is called within it. And we were, when we were talking about this, I discussed that throwing exceptions in a real-time systems like video games is often a bad idea because you will suffer a massive performance hit by doing it. And trust me, I have learned this the bad way. So never throw exceptions in so-called mission-critical code. And I think many of us have heard that advice. And if not, well, here it is. Don't throw exceptions in mission-critical code, right? And find some safe way to work around exceptions. And a simple example uh, people always give is the following. Imagine that you need to get the value from a dictionary in C-sharp. Um, you can do that in a couple of ways, and the easy way is to simply pass the key into the dictionary and get its value. But that's not safe, since the key, if the key does not exist, uh, an exception will be thrown, and you will need to catch it. Um, but you can also use like the try get value function from the dictionary to get the value. This function returns a boolean and passes the result as a as an output argument of the function. Um, this way, you can easily wrap the try-get-value function in an if statement. And if the if statement passes, you can use that value because you know it's not null. And I always thought this was a very nice example for how to make code safe in a very easy manner. And I also talked about how I use the try-get-value strategy in many parts of my code. And thus do not agree with Uncle Bob on his advice about not using output arguments and functions because they can be really it can be really handy, right? But yeah, that was all in part one of this uh, Clean Code series uh, of the podcast. And if you have not listened to it, uh, go back there and check it out. But for now, let's jump into chapter 7, Error Handling. And Uncle Bob starts with a topic I sort of agree with, depending on the scenario, I guess. I mean, all the advice he gives in this chapter is depending on the context, where and when the error is thrown or catched. So if it's in mission-critical code or in some random update loop of some game object, throwing exceptions is just a bad idea, because the performance of your game will tank. But on the other hand, if the exception is thrown in some code that does not impact the frame rate, then it's okay, and exceptions are a very easy and clean and nice language feature to use. 
So his first advice is to use exceptions rather than error codes. He says that when you do not use exceptions and use error codes in like log messages, your code can become very obscure because you need to add in a lot of weird check checks and conditions in your code. And yeah, Uncle Bob is right here. And in Unity, where we do not want to throw exceptions, we cover the code with lots of if statements to make sure nothing can go wrong. So you check for many situations where errors can pop up. And if there are incorrect things, you use like a debug log error, for example, to make it appear in the log. Yet not throw an exception because your performance will suffer. So yeah, his advice is to use exceptions over logs since it will make the code cleaner. But I think that in this case, we need to take his advice based on the context we are in. As I said for a couple of times now already, don't throw exceptions in mission critical code. Find some way to work around it and make your code still safe. And his next advice is about how you should always write your try catch finally statements first. He says that that try catch finally statements are a bit like transactions in a database. So no matter what happens in the try block, if it encounters an exception, the catch block needs to make sure your game is left in the state uh, as before the try block got executed. I think this is a really nice analogy. So whatever magic you do in the try block, if an exception is thrown, you must undo that magic in the catch block. And an example would be to make sure that any side effects are that are created in the try block are taken care of, with the most obvious example, of course, being closing a stream or closing a file. So when you open a stream in a try block and execute some logic, but it throws an exception, you will need to close that stream in the catch block or else you will have a memory leak in your system. Plus you can no longer open the stream to the same file because it still exists and it's still in use as far as the code is aware. So you must close that stream in the catch block. And I think this is really great advice and you should consider this carefully. And Uncle Bob continues his rant with a section about checked exceptions. But this is truly a Java problem and not a C-sharp problem. And in Java, you can define which type of exceptions can be thrown by certain methods, which is useful, but also stupid if you ask me. When you define some concrete exception types that can be thrown by methods, you create, well, you guessed it, dependencies. So if you change the type of the exception that is thrown in a method, all the code that calls that method in any way must recompile and thus you lose the ability to create independent systems. We in C-sharp cannot state what type of exception is returned by a method, although we can add like a function summary to a function to describe that there can be uh, an exception uh, be thrown, but we do not state concrete types that can be thrown by functions. This is good, by the way. Uh, and I think this is one feature of Java that we as uh, .NET developers are glad not to have. And I don't think that we are missing any Java features, by the way. The next thing he describes is something I do agree with heavily, and that is that you should always provide context with exceptions. I mean, ex an exception is thrown for a reason. You threw it because you validated some data or whatever, and thus you know why you threw it. 
you should provide useful information in the exception by a message, for example. So if you throw like a null reference exception because the player prefab is null when you try to instantiate it, add like a string saying, fail to instantiate the player because the prefab is null or something. Just make sure that the exception does not create confusion. And next, Uncle Bob says that you should create your own exception classes to fit the caller's need. So always create exceptions that provide information to the class or classes that are calling that code. So, def so if you define custom exception in such a way uh, that define why they are caught. So as in my previous example, where the player prefab was null, you could throw a simple out of the box null reference exception, or you could create like a custom exception with type like prefab null exception, to create a more fine-grained exception type. And me, personally, well, I don't create much custom exception types. Um, well, as I said before, I usually do not throw exceptions in Unity code since the performance penalty is often too high. So, but yeah, when I do throw an exception, I often just use what C Sharp provides to me, unless the exceptions just don't match with the problem that I have. But most of the time, a simple null reference exception or a simple argument exception with a proper message is more than enough information for the callee. And then Uncle Bob says that if you follow the practices for error handling we have discussed so far, you can get a good separation between business and error handling code. But in some cases, exceptions are used to define the flow of the system. And let me give you a fun example in a Unity context. Imagine that you have like a player class, which holds a reference to a Jetpack class. Because why not? Jetpacks are awesome, right? Now, when you press the jump button, you need to check for the Jetpack being there. And if you have the reference, you invoke the Jetpack. Else, you simply jump. Some people like to model this condition by using an exception. So if if you press the jump button and the jetpack is not there, you throw an exception, catch it, and then just invoke this normal jump function. That's weird, right? I mean, why would you do this? And if you throw an exception in this case, it can be really confusing since jump is, a, is still a valid action to take, but you just don't have a jetpack. So don't throw exceptions in the normal flow of your game. Use exceptions for, well, exceptions that happen in your code, like exceptional states. And the last subject Uncle Bob talks about in this chapter is that you should never return or pass null to a function. And although this sounds nice, and I would agree with him in, in a non-unity context, I still often return null from functions still since it does not allocate any memory. And Uncle Bob makes the case that if you return or pass null into a function, you will find out really quickly that your code will be riddled with many null checks for any kinds of data. And yeah, yes, he's right. But yeah, in a unit context, you need to do many null checks anyway. I mean, don't just rely on having a reference to a game object, for example. Always check it for null before manipulating it because it could have been destroyed at any time. But Uncle Bob says that having all these null checks in your code makes your code less clean. And he's probably right here, but I still do prefer returning null over some expensive memory allocation thing. Especially, again, 
in the code that impacts the FPS of the game. You don't want to start allocating memory inside an update loop, for example, because you are going to notice that garbage collector kicking in. Trust me, you will see this hiccup when a GC collects. I do, however, agree with his statement that you should never ever intentionally pass null into a function. Like with the previous example with the jetpack, if your jump method required the jetpack reference and you know for a fact that you do not have a jetpack, don't just call the jump function with null as an argument. Just create a second function that does not take arguments uh, and call that. So, again, a wrap. Another chapter of the clean codebook done. Chapter 7, error handling. And since we still have some time left on this episode, I would like to continue this discussion with the next chapter, chapter 8, which is about boundaries. So, the next chapter is about how to properly integrate with third-party code. And I think it is particularly interesting for him to put such a chapter in the book. I mean, when you think about clean code, you often do not consider third-party code, right? So having a short chapter dedicated to this topic is really nice. And third-party code can be many things, like code you get from GitHub for free, or some API on the web, or some web service you spend some money on, or even code from the team next door, or an asset from the asset store. You want to have a clean interface into that code and create as less dependencies on it as you can. And with dependencies, I mean source code dependencies. You will always keep the runtime dependencies, but you can avoid source code dependencies. And that's not the only thing, of course. You also want to have a nice interfaces to talk to. I mean, if the third-party interface is unclear and badly named, it can create confusion on your side. So in the next section, we will discuss some of the practices on how to deal with these things. And although Uncle Bob uh, will not dive too deeply into turning source code dependencies into runtime dependencies in this book, he essentially wrote an entire book uh, about this called Clean Architecture. But that's not the subject of this episode, so let's continue with Chapter 8, Boundaries. So... First of all, he starts off by saying you should always build like a facade around third-party code, like a package or a component. Uh, second, something he does not mention himself, but more an observation on my end, uh, use DTOs for communication with these APIs if needed. Remember DTOs? We discussed them a bit earlier and they are specifically designed for this purpose. Another great advice he gives is that you should wrap any specific types that are returned by third-party code into a type of your own, or else you end up spreading the dependency of that library or package all throughout your codebase. So what he's saying here essentially is that you should always wrap third-party code code like an API into a facade class and wrap or convert any special type returned by the package in some business object of your own to break that dependency as soon as you can so it does not spread inside your code base. So I think this is great advice. I always set up some facade class to talk to third-party stuff because it is really easy to well encapsulate it, hide it and maybe at some point replace it. You just change the implementation of that facade class and you're done. And well, oh, um, if you do not know what a facade class is, it's a design pattern which aims to simplify an interface by wrapping it into a single nice object for you to use. 
if this not does not make sense, uh, Google it for a second. And I fondly remember the example given in a book from the Head First series, like uh, Head First uh, Design Patterns. The book describes the facade class in a really simple example, and that is a universal uh, remote control which can access your like your TV, DVD player, sound system, and maybe some other stuff as well. So the remote control is a facade to all these other devices. If you know how to operate and work with the facade, you don't need to know all the inter intricate details of your TV, DVD player, or sound system. I always like this particular example, and maybe that's why I still remember it, uh, although I read the books many years ago, like 8 or 10 or something. So create a facade around third-party code to hide implementation details and nicely encapsulate things so they don't leak into your own code base or confuse the color of that code. And next, Uncle Bob talks about a subject that sounds really nice on paper, but in practice is difficult, especially in a Unity 3D context. And that is how you should uh, explore third-party code by a means of unit testing. So what he means is that you can write tests against uh, a third-party API to find out exactly what the code does. But I think uh, we all know how difficult and horrible it is to test some random guy's uh, code from the asset store. I mean, a lot of code on the asset store is heavily dependent on the Unity API and is very difficult to test. And you should also consider the fact that a great deal of code on the asset store uh, might, well, not be on your standards, uh, if you know what I mean. Trust me, um, I've bought many assets on the store and often I've been disappointed about the overall code quality. And don't get me wrong, the code often works, but uh, if there's bugs, I, it's really difficult to, to, to find them and work with. Uh, on the other hand, uh, there are also many great, really nicely written packages on the asset store. Um, but I bet that if you have some experience buying asset store, uh, buying assets in the store, you probably know of some package that, well, wasn't worth it, and you should have written it yourself. But we were talking about how Uncle Bob likes to explore third-party code by covering the API with unit tests. The example in this book is a funny one. It's about learning log4j. <laughs> so he has about two pages in the book on how we would use unit tests as a means of exploration. And I have tried this exp uh, approach a couple of times and it works really great if the package you are targeting is just code and no fancy physics-based asset package, for example, because then you have all these dependencies from the physics engine, right? So if you have some code that simply does some transformations, you can very easily uh, explore the code this way and increase your test coverage. But then again, it does not work well with code that does fancy Unity things because that's just really difficult to test. And I'm not sure if it's worth the effort to find lots of workarounds uh, like testing hacks to get uh, to test certain things. And I remember doing like a hobby project where I set out to create like a very simple 2D game, fully test driven. This is my first time of building a game in Unity 3D in a fully test driven uh, the development workflow, also known as TDD. Um, 
if you don't know what test-driven development is, uh, it's a practice where you first write the unit test and then write some production code and make it work. So you always have a failing test before you actually write any working code. And I'm not going too much into details about TDD since it's a nice topic for uh, for another podcast and hint, hint, the next chapter. But it, in my projects, uh, I also used to, uh, to make so-called um, runtime tests, which are tests in Unity 3D where you can start the scene, do some tests and clean up the scene. This way you can test some awake or start logic or update logic, for example. And I quickly found that if you use runtime tests, you need to find some clever testing hacks to test certain behavior. And I can't really remember them from the top of my head and I can look into them if you like. So let me know if you think that's interesting and I'll cover it uh, in some next podcast. But let's continue with clean code again. Um, next, Uncle Bob talks about how learning a third-party API through unit tests is helpful since you can increase not just your own understanding of the code, but also that of your team. And again, he is right, but there's nuances, right? Which we already talked about. And he also makes a nice observation that if you cover an API with unit tests, you can really easily upgrade it and update the API and make sure it works just do the update of the API and run the test, right? Wouldn't that be awesome? I mean, it's a perfect world, isn't it? <laughs> just hope that the asset did not have any breaking changes, right? So tests that cover third-party code might ease uh, like migration to a new version. And next, he talks about how you can also use these tests to cover what he calls unknown code. And what he means is that there's well, sometimes part of the code that is pure magic to us. You have a loss of knowledge about the code and the problem you're solving, but at some point uh, that knowledge might like drop off the end of a cliff. And sometimes what is on the other side of that boundary is unknowable, at least for now. And sometimes you do not even want to look past that boundary because it's not your problem. And a simple example would be like the Newtonsoft uh, JSON serializer we often use in Unity 3D. It's a massive, very cool, stable library for JSON and coding. And this is such a boundary I do not want to dive the, into uh, and preferably would have remained to be unknown. But yeah, I, I dove into it anyway. But yeah, it just put the DLL into your plugins folder and call serialize and deserialize stuff, right? Um, well, it works very well in like 99% of the cases until you need to write some custom JSON things or make sure the performance is high. Then you need to dive into that boundary and it is no longer unknown. So you could write unit tests for this uh, particular example. I mean, writing unit tests against custom serialization is easy since you know what the output uh, and input is. But writing tests against the second problem, which was about trying to increase the performance, is pretty difficult. How are we going to write proper unit tests that check memory allocation and garbage collection, for example? Is that even something we want to write unit tests for? I, I don't think so, right? So, as I said, there are nuances with just covering third-party APIs with unit tests, 
we did not even cover the fact that some APIs are cloud-based. So are you going to write uh, unit tests that run across the network through HTTP requests? What if the internet fails during your CI pipeline? Will that cause the pipeline to fail then? I mean, the internet is out. Uh, it has nothing to do with the test itself. But then again, if you can cover third-party APIs with tests easily, it might be a very valuable thing since you can create not just an understanding for yourself, but also for your team. Plus your unit tests might come in handy when migrating the library to a new version. Just upgrade it and run the darn test again. And all right, again, another chapter covered. We just discussed the eighth chapter of the books, boundaries, and we talked about how boundaries are important uh, as a conceptual separation between code and how to make sure your code is decoupled from third-party code. And we also discussed how to explore third-party code by means of testing with all the pros and cons. And I see we still have some time left on this episode, so let's be fucking crazy and continue with yet another chapter, uh, chapter nine, unit tests. And it's not the shortest chapter in this episode, so it might be a tad longer, but yeah, it is fine, right? So let's talk about unit tests. Although we have just talked quite a bit about tests uh, in the previous chapter. And everyone knows that Uncle Bob uh, is a fanatic proposer of test-driven development. He always talks about how his, how his stupid TDD sounded to him until he met up with Kent Beck and conjured uh, up a little Java program at Kent Beck's house. He was amazed how they could write that program so nicely and never having to touch a debugger. From that moment on, he was sold on TDD and became its prophet. And he's been spreading the word about TDD ever since, I guess. So in this chapter, uh, it's not directly about TDD, but it's about, well, as the title implies, unit test. And I think after all these years that testing is a thing, the debate is still going about what a unit test is exactly. Is it a function, as many people say, or is a unit a clause? And if so, what about unit tests in like functional languages where classes do not exist uh, or just older uh, programming languages li like structured languages like Fortran or even C? Uh, let's see if this chapter shines some light on that. I'm not even sure if Uncle Bob gives us a definition uh, for a unit test in this chapter, but we will find out soon enough. So Uncle Bob starts this chapter with a little story about how he used to test some concurrent code based on a timer by singing a little song while typing the text in and the test repeating it in the same speed with just, yeah, it matched the melody. So by repeating that little song, he could check whether the code was correct. I guess that's some really out of the box thinking and solution for such a test, right? He, <laughs> I mean, he also talks about how he would test that code today. And he, as he said, he would cover every nook and cranny with tests. He would isolate the code from the operating system, removing the dependencies to timing and write his own timing abstraction and schedule the commands himself. And he continues on with stating the three laws of TDD, which are pretty insane if you have never heard them or uh, experienced their effect. So the first law states, and I quote, you may not write production code until you have written a failing unit test. 
So you must always write a failing test first. And if taken really strictly, not compiling is a failing test. And the second law states, and I quote, you may not write more of a unit test than is sufficient to fail and not compiling is failing. So if you wrote some test, it can never be that long to begin with because as soon as you start writing some code that does not exist, you need to stop writing that code and add some production code. However, the third law stays, and I quote again, you may not write more production code than is sufficient to pass the currently failing test. So you end up in this very short cycle, a very short loop until you have written some code. Now, okay, I've done some TDD before and let me tell you that these laws should not be taken too strictly. I mean, I do write my tests first and I may even write some code that does not compile. But often enough, I will write my entire test case first and then add the production code that covered it. So I might have multiple concepts in the test that do not compile, but, but I'm not going back and forth in this minuscule cycle. That's a bit too much, I think. But what do you think about these three laws? Leave me a comment somewhere, because I'm pretty interested to know if any of you practice TDD in a Unity 3D context, and if you follow these laws uh, strictly or loosely. And next, Uncle Bob's explains about the necessity that tests should follow the same software design principles just as any other code. Don't just break rules and standards because it's just the tests, because it will come back and bite you, trust me. If you start breaking encapsulation, design rules like dependency management or structures in your test classes, you will end up with a big mess. And as with any practitioner of TDD, I felt that pain as well that you have written so many unit tests, but now I have to change something in the requirements and lots of these tests break. This is what is also known as the fragile test problem. And a guy called Ian Cooper has a really nice talk about this at Devternity, which is a really awesome conference by the way. So a massive shout out to them as well. But it's a talk about TDD and what went wrong by Ian Cooper. And Shout out to his beard as well, by the way. But Uncle Bob <laughs> also just wants you to know that test code is just as important as production code. Don't throw all your software design principles overboard while writing test code, because they will start to slow you down immensely and you will probably delete them and thus lose your tests. Next he talks about how tests enable the illities of your game. And by illities he means the non-functional requirements your game has, like maintainability, which says something about the ease of maintaining the code or systems in your game. It might even describe how you maintain 3D models. But also things like performance is an illity. So you might state that the game should never get lower than 40 frames per second or availability in the context of an online game, or maybe portability, which defines uh, the ease of porting your game to another platform, which might sound easy in a Unity 3D context, since you can often just switch platforms and smack that build button. But if you have created a game for like standalone desktops and switch to mobile and expect everything to work out of the box, you are greatly mistaken. I mean, what about resolution, text and icon scales? 
input and the famous problem that you do not have hover functionality in mobile games. So any logic you bound to a mouse is to a mouse hover is now unavailable. And once you know about this problem, you start to notice it everywhere because people often don't think about it. Keep an eye out for it and you will also spot these problems everywhere in apps today. You might know that there is like a desktop version that has more information than on mobile because it's lacking the hover functionality. But yeah, enough about the illities. But Uncle Bob says that tests will enable your illities. Now, why does he say that? He means that if you have a system that is covered with tests, you're able to change the code as much as you want and just run the tests. Make sure they pass and thus you can refactor your code without fear to match these illities. And yeah, he's kind of right, although I don't agree with him on this one in a Unity 3D context. There is far more stuff happening in a game than just code. I mean, rendering, duh. And imagine you have written the most elegant, brilliant code that has ever been produced on the surface of this planet, but throw in a highly detailed model with some super fancy shaders, your FPS is still going to drop down the abyss. Now, you could write some unit tests that instantiates the model and check the FPS, but that's a bit too clunky, right? So for these kinds of things, there are press practices for 3D modeling, like low-poly models with a nice normal bump and specular maps, for example. Some nice shaders and maybe add some level of detail into the mix. These have nothing to do with unit tests and are really hard to write tests for. This is just something that is covered by policies defined by some art director or game designer or like a producer, for example. But if we limit the scope of the illities to just code, then tests can be a great tool to enable and support them. And next, he talks about the concept of clean tests. And test methods should not be bulky and do much logic. A test should preferably only have like three lines of code, since a test always follows a pattern of arrange, act and assert. So in a test, you arrange some code or some data or some object or structure, then you act and run the section of the code that is under test. And once you're done, you assert and check whether the code uh, you ran did what you expected. So you could cover all the test phases in merely three lines of code. And well, personally, I don't like putting a limit to this. I write tests that might be a bit longer sometimes, since I do not want to spread all these small functions around that are only called in one test case. So if you are testing a particular data structure, you might, for example, create that thing in the test itself instead of calling functions because you can get like functions like create player and create player with health and create player with health and weapon and create player with health and weapon and gear and create player with health and weapon and gear but without shield and this goes on and on and on so i often break this rule and simply create that stuff in the method itself but i do agree that 
the test code should be simple, readable, short, concise, and dense. And wow, that's a lot of words. But yeah, uh, another advice uh, that he gives here, uh, which I do agree with, is that you should stick with the same language in your tests. So if you always uh, name functions in the same way, like I personally like to write tests out as sentences with underscores instead of spaces. And a space in a function name will not compile, of course, and thus you just replace each space with an underscore. This way you can really easily retest. And don't forget you can add additional information in like the test attribute, like a description and an author, for example. Although adding the author is wordless because the, that information is in Git. And we talked about such things in previous episodes already. And uh, yeah, I'm not going to restart that rant again. Uh, but yeah, he says you should create your own little language for testing. So name your functions in the same manner. And also create functions and logic that match the arrange, act and assert concepts. Uncle Bob uh, calls it the build operate and check pattern in the book, by the way, but I think the arrange act assert concept is more widely known. He then continues his discussion with the fact that test code must be really simple. He says that test code should hide complexity in functions. And I remember making the mistake of writing tests against mono behaviors, for example. So in my arrange part of the test function, I would have to instantiate the prefab and then wait for the awake and start functions to finish. And also if you instantiate some game object, which requires the scene in some specific state, you must encode that in your arrange functions. So your setup, uh, you set up the scene, then spawn the object, and then wait for the awake and start. Only then are you able to start uh, your tests. I mean, this is far from simple. Trust me, it caused me many addicts getting these tests running. And I've felt that pain. So now I never ever test money behaviors anymore. And always decouple my code from Unity as much as I can. This thus means that there is an area of my code that is not tested, but these mono behaviors do not contain any business code and they are just treated as views or UIs. But all this testing setup should be wrapped in functions because you probably need to set up the scene more often than once. And you also need to wait for some objects awake or start function often than once. So wrap this logic in functions and abstract it away. Keep the code in the test functions themselves simple to so you can quickly see what the test case is about and not have to worry or read that giant arranged logic part of the test. And next, he states that tests should only have one assert. And although I do agree with them, there are edge cases where I just need more than one assert in a test. Like what if you are testing some logic that swaps things out like swapping a for like object a for object b you write two assert statements to check for for example the identity of both objects are you really going to write a test to sep to like two separate tests for checking the identity of a and another test for the checking the identity of b i wouldn't i mean that seems useless to me so Take this rule with a grain of salt, right? And you should 
of course, limit the asserts in a test as much as you can, but still uh, sticking to the hard rule of only ever one assert uh, statement in a test is just too limiting in some cases. Now, how do you get as less assert statements in a test case? Well, you follow Uncle Bob's uh, next piece of advice, which is to stick to one concept per test case. And I mean, this is great advice. Uh, in theory, you could cover 100% of your code in a single unit test, but would that be helpful? I don't think so. So keep tests small to cover only a tiny little piece of the code. This way, your code remains simple and readable, and you will most likely end up with just a single assert statement anyway. He then ends his chapter with some general rules for tests. And these rules come from uh, like the training materials of his old company called Object Mentor. I think he sold it by now or something and the company is no longer his, but still, the rules originate from the Object Mentor training materials. And it's an acronym that states FIRST and it stands for fast, independent, repeatable, self-validating and timely. So. Tests should be fast, because if they're not fast, you will never ever run them. Imagine going through the short TDD cycle, but at every point you need to wait like 15 minutes for all tests to pass. You won't ever run these tests during development now. These tests must be fast, like mere seconds that is. Next, tests must be independent. All tests must run in isolation of each other. This is a really important top, uh, concept. You do not want tests uh, inter uh, interacting or impacting each other. So this means no singletons, for example, or you will have to destroy them in the teardown section of your test. Like a singleton can be a great source of pain in any project, especially for testing. Uh, I mean, tests must, uh, must run in isolation, remember that. And I can fondly remember my Unity tests overlapping with each other. Like in Unity 3D, you can annotate test functions that return like an I uh, enumerator with the special Unity test uh, attribute, which allows the editor to bind them to like the editor update loop. But I noticed that uh, since these are I enumerators, they could actually overlap with each other uh, like a single frame or so. And I'm not sure if this issue is fixed, but I use uh, use as less of these uh, I, Unity tests, I enumerator uh, tests as you can. And next, tests must be repeatable. I mean, what value does a test have if it's not repeatable? The fact you have written tests means that they are repeatable, right? So don't stick to manual testing and automate that crap. And next. Tests must be self-validating. Tests should either pass or fail. There cannot be any in-between state. Don't start manually comparing uh, results of like debug logs, for example. Make sure it is covered by an assert. And lastly, tests should be timely. And this relates to the rules of TDD. Tests should be written just before the production code is written because then you know you have covered everything. If you write them any, uh, at any time afterwards, you will forget to cover stuff that you either like forgot or just made hard to test and just don't test. And then you leave holes in the test suite, making them meaningless. 
I mean, if you know there are holes in the test suite, yet they all pass, does that convince you that the code is correct or safe to release to your audience? Think about that. I mean, if you know the test suite does not cover everything, what value does it bring? But let's call this episode a wrap by now. I've been talking for far too long. But I do want to end this episode uh, of the podcast with a side note, sort of a uh, clarification that although we have discussed much about unit tests and TDD, you should not see this as a religion. You should carefully apply TDD and unit testing where it makes sense. And Uncle Bob has a different opinion about this since he advises people to use uh, TDD and unit tests wherever you can. But in many scenarios in Unity 3D, you simply cannot find a nice way of testing things since they are too coupled to the Unity 3D API. Imagine uh, having to test some third-party asset that is not designed to be testable. You will end up with the fragile test problem, trust me. And again, uh, watch the talk called TDD What Went Wrong by Ian Cooper about this topic. And another thing, maybe you don't need to apply TDD in some scenarios like when you are rapidly prototyping some gameplay, for example. You're going to make things difficult when you start throwing TDD into the mix during prototyping. Just because the nature of a prototype allows you to cut corners, may that be design-wise, code or structure. Um, you might pull in so many dependencies, create a horrible spaghetti monster code nest just to demo and prototype some idea. Just make sure to throw that prototype into the bin and start over with a new clean project and then apply the practices you learn from the clean code book and this podcast of course um, but yeah let's call it a day and quit this podcast since it's been taking far too long now the next podcast will be about the next couple of chapters of the book uh, how many well i don't know in this episode we covered four chapters although some of them were only like five pages long so I, I don't know how many chapters we will cover in the next episode, but yeah, we will see. Um, yeah, I hope you enjoyed this episode and learned something new and valuable. And start applying these things in your current and new projects and pick the fruit of your learnings, so to say. Don't forget to rate this podcast on your favorite platform and leave me some feedback or comments if you like. Okay, so see you next time. And as always, remember... With Unity, we can do great things. Game over.